0: Welcome to the Cory Mila podcast, exploring stories and ideas about conflict,
1: peace, theology and art. Hello and welcome to the Cori Mila podcast. My name is Padraig Tuma, and with me today is Katie Hayward. Katie is a professor of political sociology at Queen's University in Belfast and a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences. She's an expert on borders and the Northern Ireland Protocol, and her book, What Do We Know and What Should We Do About the Irish Border, was published in 2021. Katie Hayward, you're very welcome to the Cormilla Podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Patrick.
1: (laughs) real pleasure. We're going to start off with an easy question, Katie. Um, Were there any um, experiences in childhood that you think prepared you for the work you do now, or interests in childhood as well?
0: Well there's a question. Um, I would say there's two things, so one is family holidays around Ireland and falling in love with the place, Um, and the other would have been perhaps as an older child, so um, uh, most particularly um, studying for GCSE History, the First World War, and I think it was the first time bringing together poetry from the era as well as um, history and realizing the potential negative effects of, obviously, of um, identities and ideologies and, and where it can lead, um, and particularly the responsibility of political leaders and all of that. I think that was a really formative moment. Um, and I do definitely think where i ended up in a funny way kind of brings together those two experiences in the sense of an appreciation of i think the responsibility of political leaders and of citizens and an effort to avoid ending up in a situation where the most horrendous things can can happen
1: I was curious as to whether the politics or the sociology came first. I can maybe make a guess based on what you're just saying there, Katie, but I'm curious which one came first for you. Um.
0: um so in a funny way, it was never really that clear. So I ended up studying peace and conflict in McGee. And part of the reason why I ended up doing it was partly because of wanting to be in Ireland and partly because not being Clear about a particular discipline that I wanted to study. And peace and conflict was obviously perfect in that it was interdisciplinary. And I have sort of had the luxury, I'd say, of not having to then ever, as an academic, fit in a particular disciplinary category, um, partly because of wanting intellectual um, and knowledge and evidence. Never to be constrained by a particular discipline. So to be able to take inspiration from various quarters and see the connection between them and then apply them to the world around us and better understanding of the world around us. So yes, I went, I went sort of, I ended up I, my PhD was in politics department, but um in UCD, as it happens, but always feeling very happy and comfortable in you know, going to seminars,
1: et cetera, in sociology and philosophy, et cetera. Katie, you were awarded the title of political communicator of the year in 2019. And then the following year, you were given a Your Biggs Memorial Prize in recognition of the way that you've used Twitter to communicate about Brexit. What is it that um, is of interest to you in terms of access to public evidence and public knowledge? Because uh, I follow you on Twitter and I've been so struck by the, the clarity and the precision that you give and I've heard you in interviews be really clear about what an opinion is as well as what evidence is what is it for you that is so important about that
0: yes i mean it's funny you should talk about twitter actually because i've sort of come off it recently partly post elon musk i have to say and partly because i was beginning to be concerned that actually part of what i was able to offer was actually now at the point of opinion so that's been sort of reflecting the wider political environment around the issues that I was contributing. I hoped to understanding of which is obviously Brexit and the protocol, and because we hadn't had, it wasn't much new to to say on that, much more evidence to present. I sort of felt I was erring towards offering opinion, which then. Always, I have to say, always got much more reaction, probably than the than the, the diagrams or the PowerPoint slides. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wasn't sure how constructive that was. And there's this whole other dimension too um that I ended up feeling rather uncomfortable about, which was about me personally, um as a as a commentator, and, and I was I didn't want to be sort of thought of in those terms, and I was extremely honoured to um, have a situation in which what I hoped was an academic useful contribution was recognised by such as uh, Europe Biggs and and the Political Studies Association, simply recognising the very positive things that are on offer through um, social media um, in terms of access to all sorts of people from all different walks of life and levels of interest and, and knowledge um and um that offered a lot of positive things and it was it was great to get um some encouragement about anything else to keep going on that particularly you at Bigs, of course which is such a um renowned and hugely important and well respected prize and for them to give it to somebody like me for a twitter account i thought was very courageous on their part <laughs> <laughs> Especially as I was being awarded it alongside Anna Burns, I mean it's it's really it's deeply humbling. Um, but but uh, uh, in terms of, I say that the there's a particular value to Twitter in the in the access to people and to be able to offer some evidence. But there's also risks too that you begin to offer opinion in place of that, and and uh, hence I'm a little bit more cautious. Well, a little bit cautious in in my
1: position on that more recently you know you have been um on television on news and radio in writing on social media um in lectures in public engagements speaking about the border in ireland the that border that um, marks the the split jurisdiction between the republic and the north and I'm curious, first of all, about what drew you to the attention of Borders. Was there something in particular that drew you to wanting to pay attention to that? Or was it just what was current in the news at the time over the last number of years?
0: Yes, it was a kind of in a in a roundabout way. So when I was originally looking at the concept of post-nationalism, in light of the Good Friday Belfast Agreement, and in light of European integration um, that led me, obviously, to understanding nationalism and the importance of territory in that, and therefore, of course, borders. Originally my work on the Irish border was primarily about its diminishing significance, so trying to understand the impact of uh, European integration and indeed Post Good Friday Belfast Agreement cooperation on relations across the island. Um, and seeing that in international terms was really useful. And it was great to be able to increasingly speak um, of um, the border in terms of a, it being a point of cooperation uh, and a meeting point, as um as has been described by many people. So uh that was all well and good and obviously then in the context of brexit um and trying to appreciate what Brexit meant for borders then it became obviously more uh, important to sort of <clears throat> read up and I'm expert on what a hardening border looks like and what was then expected and um required of an external border of the european union so in a funny way i've come to sort of border studies in the reverse way, to the way that most people do, uh, about hardening borders rather than um,
1: softening them. And I mean, it's so interesting to talk about a border on the one hand as a meeting point and on the other hand as a dividing point. Like the Irish word for border is children, which means limitation. And um, I'm fascinated by the idea that at one point, anyway, it feels like a long time ago that the the border that divides the two Irish jurisdictions could have been considered a place of meeting rather than division. Would you talk about that?
0: Mm, I mean, I think I think all borders are that, right? Because when we think about borders and people in border regions, they if we're talking primarily about open borders, they it's possible to have lives that benefit from access to the two jurisdictions and in some time you know some cases to economies, to cultures, um to, uh, an open door to a wider range of experience. And so in that sense, broad regions can be uh, places of richness and diversity in, in ways that peripheral areas are not. Mm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think one so when we're talking about borders, it's worth recognizing, of course, this is about two sides of something, and about then there there, there are positive opportunities to come from that, as well as understanding borders as a as the capacity to as having capacity to draw boundaries and and to limit. Yeah, I mean?
1: and given the situation in Ireland, where you know the border. Even before Brexit, and obviously for the hundred and two years of the border, there has been strong contention about it. Some people wanting it, and some people not. So, in in a contested border region, would you say the same thing rings true—that it can be a meeting place, given that some people want it to be fortified and other people wish it to be diminished?
0: Uh, So, there's a difference here, of course, between the symbolism and the political significance of a border and then the lived experience of being in a border region so um obviously you know dioceses and parishes and communities and uh townlands sort of cross the border and so you can have cross-border uh, experiences and identities regardless of your political affiliation of course and aspiration um and But also then you do have that political significance of a border. And I think one thing that was really interesting that Brexit highlighted was how people's conception of a border can be so very much affected by that political viewpoint. So we did find that those who voted lead in the border region would be able to talk about the border as if it wasn't right there on their doorstep so about taking back control of borders it was you know they meant it um but in the same way that people elsewhere in the united kingdom who was voting need meant taking back control of borders um it wasn't necessarily something that they expected to see translated into an effect on their everyday life um and i obviously that relates to wider understandings of brexit and Uh, what that whole process was in terms of uh, claims being made around um, sovereignty and what was possible nowadays um, for contemporary states to try and promise and and achieve. And we're still having that struggle. And so um, post-Brexit, post-protocol, trying to keep an eye on actually what it is to have a harder Irish border and particularly, of course, this is affecting lives as well as political identities. Um, and most immediately we know that it's affecting those who don't have British or Irish citizenship, maybe live cross-border lives and maybe feel most vulnerable to potential policy changes.
1: Katie, you mentioned the word sovereignty there. And I wonder if you could take us down a little rabbit hole of sovereignty because it's used a lot. And I'm curious about um, from your point of view. Where does your mind go to when you hear the word sovereignty? Like you already when you spoke about borders, you talk about the emotional relationship to the border and the significance of it, the gesture of it, um, the, the symbol of it and the, the politics of it. What what when it comes to sovereignty do you think? Where do you where would you take us with that complicated word?
0: I think very much there is a sense of when people talk about sovereignty, promise things in relation to national sovereignty. Um, it's trying to appeal to something very fundamental and that individuals generally find attractive. And that is this idea of uh, capacity to make autonomous decisions mm-hmm. that we think are in our own best interests. And I think when we talk about sovereignty, this tends to be just expanded out to the to the national stage as if it is possible to make decisions autonomously and I think fundamentally when we think in physiological terms, we realize that that isn't necessarily the case. Yeah. if it is, it's very in very limited circumstances. And most particularly when we're talking at the national level, um, the capacity to make sovereign decisions is, is is wholly constrained by international circumstances. and nowhere is this seen more clearly at at a border. So it is possible to harden a border a unilateral decision. So to require certain things of those entering entering your territory, but it's not possible to um make a border more open for us um without cooperation. And of course, people want generally the trend has been to have more open borders for mutual benefit. Um and I think this is. Um, taken on all sorts of forms in the in the you know in the 21st century. Um, and so it is really interesting that the question of sovereignty is still so present given how how obvious it is that there are immense constraints on sovereignty, not just from other states, but of course from other globally significant players, most particularly uh, international corporations.
1: So, like, is sovereignty, as you're hearing it, more important as a symbol or a gesture or as an emotional call than anything to do with policy and politics?
0: Yes, I think that's where its power lies. It, it doesn't necessarily, doesn't really mean so much in in real terms, I don't think. Yeah. Um, And this is the interesting thing, so thinking about global Britain, and sorry I always come back to Brexit, I'm a very narrow person, (laughs) but um, (laughs) global Britain is a classic example of that, so we will become more sovereign and we'll have make independent sovereign choices, we'll leave the European Union, have this global Britain, but what is global Britain, except um, expressed through an ambition to have trade agreements with other states and as we know through those trade agreements that have been negotiated so far they are bringing certain compromises and if not risks to the to the uk um, in terms of uh you know yeah decisions being made about what what enter the country etc so um yes this this is complete almost contradiction in terms um that we're seeing in the 21st century and it is amazing that the, the quest for sovereignty can be one that can gather still such, that, that can appeal so much to people um, and I think part this goes back to bigger questions that other people are, have written so well about in terms of those wider patterns of feeling that things are out of control and, um, uh, and feeling vulnerable to, to global forces um of all sorts um and so hence the hence the, the yeah it's, a, it's an emotion primarily
1: you're listening to the Corey meadow podcast and i'm Padre gotuma with me today is professor of political sociology katie hayward Katie, in your book on the Irish border, you wrote about the historical context in which that border was created, you know, in the years following the First World War. And you were saying that that was a time when men drew red lines across maps on lands they had never visited. Um, would you say that that it was a particularity of the time? Do you think it would have been done differently were things happening now? What do you, How do you see the role of time a hundred years ago when Ireland was being partitioned and maybe thinking about similar partitions that happened around the world in the 20th century? What role do you see was happening there? What influences were going on? What imaginations?
0: Mm, I mean, it was the era of nation statehood and the idea of it being possible to draw lines even the idea that they could be temporarily drawn but dividing up empires in order to create um, state systems that could potentially be sustainable for a period of time and that could appeal to a majority national identity. Um, and so, yes, we saw this happening very much obviously at the end of the First World War transformation. Of um, world maps um, through uh, the sort of most powerful states, Um, and was it particular to the time? Yes, I think so. In terms of the dominant nation-state ideology, but um, I think, and again, I'm bringing it back to Brexit and the protocol, but. I think one thing that has been quite one thing that has sort of been brought home again, I think, in this whole and over the last few years is about how it's very much possible for decisions to be made about drawing borders and creating very significant decisions being made that actually are removed from those most affected. So geographically, physically, um Removed and also not simply having the information to know the consequences of drawing those lines. Um, and when we think about what the, you know, the drawing up of the protocol and um, the various versions of it, mm. um, I mean, one way that I would explain where we've come to now through the protocol and into the Windsor framework is that now we have more evidence and understanding about the consequences of, oh, sorry, the nature of Northern Ireland's integration with Britain and with Ireland, and therefore the consequences of drawing borders. Um, that's not to say we can predict what this means, but I do think it's been, it's been quite a lesson in, in trying to solve a very complicated problem by drawing a border. Yeah.
1: And do you think that that evidence was there before or do you think it's just that it's being paid attention to now or that the evidence has indeed come to light in the last five or six years?
0: Yeah, so this is this was the point that they didn't have the evidence. They didn't know what was crossing the Irish sea, for example. So they looked at it in terms of what was possible to manage. So much easier to manage the seed water with. You know, seven air and sea entry points than to manage a land border with 270 crossings. Um, and so uh, that pra- pra- pragmatic decision was made without really knowing, and they would have said so themselves, they didn't know exactly what type of um movement they were having to control for then. Um, and then in those controls, what disruption would be caused by that. Um, and I think that's that tells us a lot about the nature of borders, So we talk about borders in terms of flows across it. And so, yes, actually, it was possible for people to, in effect, although they weren't drawing lines on a map, but they were really in controls and requirements to a new place um, that could be done without actually having the knowledge of the, the consequences of that. That wasn't necessarily, you know, obviously it wasn't affecting daily lives in the way that partition originally did, but it did bring disruption,
1: yeah,
0: um, and including ultimately then political disruption that had not been anticipated.
1: Um in the last uh, period of time the the windsor agreement has been uh, agreed upon and, and signed and is beginning to be rolled out and there's um, different versions about what it might mean depending as to who's comment who's commenting you listen to what is it that you think is um significant in terms of that agreement as it's been reached in the last while
0: so the so the windsor framework is an extraordinary Um, set of documents, so at the moment it's just an agreement in principle, we have to see the UK and EU formally agree, and then we also have to see legislative change in the UK and the EU to enable it to come to pass. Um, I think what's most uh, notable about it is that it's about allowing for the evolution of a relationship, and what we see here is significant adjustment on the part of the EU um, in recognising the unique place of Northern Ireland and why it's so significant is that we're not just talking about flexibilities when it comes to regulatory rules that apply on goods moving from Great Britain just to be sold in Northern Ireland, it's much bigger than that. It's also about, about the capacity of the EU to um uh, be able to show some, some appreciation of the situation here in Northern Ireland as could be expressed from the ground up and and the thing that I think is most um hopeful here because of course the hope in the sense of framework is when it comes to those relationships so recognizing the capacity of the UK EU relationship to um to to find mutually agreeable solutions to the problems that they recognize will, will arise um, through discussions and dialogue in the joint committee. So you've got that at that top level between the commission and the UK government. And then at the, at the, at the bottom level, you have this commitment to consultation with Northern Ireland public from the yeah. EU, a commitment to building structures for direct engagement with the EU. Yeah. Um, sorry, with Northern Ireland from the EU level. And that's really remarkable. And that doesn't, that hasn't been, Promised elsewhere are allowed for any other country associated with the EU. um, Even the member states don't get it, so that that gives me, you know, that's quite exciting to see. And we would just like, you know, be great to see that built upon fairly quickly. I think as a means of showing um, recognition of this really unique context that we have here.
1: I'm struck by what you say about relationship and obviously, you know, that means political relationship and kind of acknowledgement and recognition in that way, as well as the possibility of kind of cordial relationships. Like somebody I heard describing um, the peace uh, between Britain and Ireland once described it as needing to occur between the governments in London, Dublin and Belfast, but also in Washington, D.C. and in Brussels, that somehow all of those governments were involved in looking at what peace might mean on the island of Ireland with relationships with Britain and with relationships with itself as well and the two Irish jurisdictions. It seems like the last number of years have seen increasing frostiness in those relationships. Do you think that we're at a stage now where political leaders are beginning to say that some kind of political warmth um, in, in personality, but also then in terms of um, concessions towards each other? Is that coming back into the fray now rather than increasing um, mild chilliness or maybe even major chilliness?
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's that was the really good thing to see in the announcement of the Windsor framework is the genuine warmth and respect that seems to exist there between Prime Minister Sunak and Mr Von der Leyen as the Commission president. And that gives us cause for hope. And it reminds us of those occasions where we've seen photo ops with, um, you know, uh, with political leaders that have significant roles here in Northern Ireland. And just seeing a, a you know, a warmth in a relationship um, does make a difference and gives mm-hmm. us some confidence. Um, I, I think, and we know that the British-Irish relationship has been tense, and of course, uh, that we need to think more. We need to think differently now about that bilateral relationship because actually, it's not just the two of them making this marriage now that affects Northern Ireland. It is very much an international concern now. So all EU27 member states have um, uh, uh, are, if you like, to use that very overused phrase, co guarantors of the agreement now, because what, they're allow- what they are willing to accept or allow under the protocol wins a framework for Northern Ireland and the amount of engagement they're wanting and allowing to see directly with Northern Ireland, all of that has a significant impact here and therefore on the sense of stability here. So um, that, that's very much changed. And I think obviously the British-Irish relationship remains key, but it's more much more complicated than it was before in that um, if the UK-EU relationship is poor, um, then that will always negatively affect the British-Irish relationship in a way that it didn't before. You know, in the past, obviously, UK had its own tensions in the EU. But still remain there, and now it's outside. There is a concern that, that those tensions obviously can have very practical effects. Obviously, but then puts pressure on that bilateral relationship and indeed the north south relationship. Um. So seeing, seeing seeing warmth there and a bit of trust building, um, means more than more than uh more than it might otherwise have done because we know the consequences here.
1: I mean, warmth is, um, it seems like a soft diplomatic word, but you're speaking about warmth as having kind of pretty significant power in terms of trade agreements and international um, relations between governments and, and like the European Union and the British government and the U.S., um, do you think that there's a broader um, kind of human condition lesson in this about warmth? I'm asking you to veer off the sociology, Katie, but I'm curious if you reflect on warmth that happens in political spheres and, and think about that in other areas, too, of of society and life.
0: Yes. So, yeah, I'm finding myself using that term and I wouldn't normally, I think. But it makes a nice change from mood music. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I remember the mood music, yeah. Yes, and now we have now we sing and dancing together. That's great. I I think, funnily enough, so talking a wee bit with those um, involved in some of the discussions and negotiations, one thing that really strikes me is how ready people were for an improvement in that relationship. Mm. Um, And I will. I will put it in a certain way that wasn't said to me, but but the way I'm sort of understanding this is they they knew each other. The UK and the EU knew each other. Like they're very familiar. And indeed they they grew together over the last 50 years. And there's a sense there was almost a sense of waiting until was that that the other side was offering something that was kind of familiar. So particularly for the UK, just waiting for. Um, I don't know what the word is, it's not sincerity, but uh, just the sense of you could say, yeah, actually we do believe you that you want an agreed outcome here. So even though we had such things as a protocol bill on the table, etc., um, etc. I think there was, um, and it wasn't just one, and it wasn't just the foreign secretary, it wasn't just the prime minister, there were others as well um that people uh, could respond to this sense of um a genuine intention there to improve that relationship yeah and recognize this is this is not sustainable um in the longer term Mm. we need to we always going to have a relationship let's make it a better one rather than a a worsening one and so it was really i think it is very it's really interesting how just that human sense of being able to, to trust that somebody wants The same thing as you in terms of a better relationship, open up all sorts of possibilities then to be able to bring to the table a willingness to show a bit of trust and a willingness to show flexibility. Now that's not to say that the safeguards in the Windsor framework aren't pretty serious and heavy and you know the EU isn't just going into this with blind trust, it has to be sure all its member states that um, the flexibility it's showing is backed up with safeguards. But at the same time, there's a there's a confidence about this because they, there's a sense of sincerity there and, and genuine human relationship that's been built and invested in. Um so and we know that we know that from the Good Friday Agreement and negotiations that went into that. It's about it is about relationship building, no matter how much you disagree, at least you know each other and respect each other at a certain level, and, and that's come into play. Um and
1: not before time. You're listening to the Coramela podcast and I'm Padraig Gotuma. With me today is border expert and sociologist Katie Hayward. Katie, you mentioned the Good Friday Agreement just now. I'm curious, what is it that you think is significant about that as you look at it through the lens of somebody who pays attention to peace and conflict, to the border in Ireland, to political negotiations? What is it that you, what are the standout lines or standout um, hopes at the heart of the Good Friday Agreement?
0: Do you know what, Parag? I was just writing about this recently and thinking about this and, and going back to the agreement and those phrases that have been, um, that they're very familiar to us and yet they would become um, circumscribed both in their import and in the consequence and in their geographical effect. So um, to explain what I mean, looking at the at Friday Belfast Agreement and we see these terms such as the rigorous impartiality about protection of civil, social, and economic, political rights um, uh, and also um, around exclusively democratic and peaceful means of resolving differences. Right, We tend to think of those things just as applying to us in, in Northern Ireland, whereas in actual fact they are about Britain and Ireland, so exercising Sovereign Paris, it's called in Northern Ireland with rigorous impartiality. That's responsibility of the UK and possibly in the future of Ireland. And um, commitment to protection of um, civil, political, economic, and social rights is across the respective jurisdictions of Ireland and the UK. It's not just within Northern Ireland. Um, So, when we appreciate that, it helps us understand quite how. Important this agreement is not just for Northern Ireland but for these islands as a whole, and indeed, you know, the uh, promise to the principles of partnership, equality, and mutual respect as the basis of relationships that's not just within Northern Ireland, it's between these islands. Yeah, Hmm. and are we ready to see that now? I mean, that's that's why things have felt so fragile and under pressure and strain because we have not seen. So fulfilment of those commitments um, across these islands and in that relationship, um, let alone within Northern Ireland, and this is what I hope that this, you know, 25 years on, that actually that will be for them to, for both the UK and Ireland to recognise this is significant for, for their citizens across these islands, not just in this place.
1: I'm going to return to the to sociology, but I'm curious what trends you're noticing in terms of current and political engagement regarding Dublin and Belfast and London, maybe broader as well, and political conversations too. What is it that? What trends do you think are emerging that are going to continue to be important over the next while? I I suppose I'm particularly interested in what sociological trends are you seeing that that really are worthwhile paying public attention to.
0: I mean, there's the possibly most worrying that we've seen for a while is the, is the alienation from the political process and so when we look at survey data about opinion on the agreement you know should it is it fit for purpose should it be reformed or should it be removed the really worrying thing is about the fact that you know a third of people under the age of 35 maybe don't know and have no opinion on the matter Um. And I do think we see that sense of alienation having uh, a negative effect, not just in terms of non-participation in political activity and in the civic sphere, but also people leaving, of course, and sort of giving up on the place. And also there is a disjuncture between Peter Pill's political priorities particularly amongst younger people and their expressed needs and what they would like to see offered from um from the state if you like or from uh, um, public services they're simply are not not there and, don't, and there's not much prospect of them coming into play either so uh, we know amongst younger people priorities is mental health and well-being when we say you know even such a question as what would make Northern Ireland a good place to live it's that issue that comes to the fore is the, is the biggest concern and not only are we not um addressing that this you know that the situation is worsening by the week almost and so um that that would be that would be concerning as well I think so that political alienation but also when people are concerned for mental health and well-being, that tells you something about civil society and about individuals' place in society and their connection to other people. Yeah. Um, that, that really does suggest a uh, wider social problems that are going to be very, very difficult to address in the term. And this is going to sound biased, but it's not. I'm just speaking from this experience, and that is, You know, in terms of the international interest and particularly from EU member states, I am struck by how even just things like longer interviews and uh, a concern to sort of um, understand the wider social dynamics here and the, the wider social context for the challenges posed by Brexit and the and the you know, the value placed on the Good Friday Belfast well, Agreement, etc. I mean, that's very clear from um, international um, states. Um, but from the UK, there's something different going on, and there's definitely been obviously appreciation that Northern Ireland is in a difficult position, in this particular. Um, but I think, and I think, you know, I do think that tends to Northern Ireland tends to be understood in terms of how it might play into dynamics in Westminster, in particular in terms of personalities and drama. And this is why, you know, this is why it would be particularly concerned around the future, because of how small and superficial understanding of politics has become in the UK. Um, and now there are some very notable exceptions and really important ones, but for the most part, including you know the mainstream media um, coverage of Northern Ireland, indeed wider issues around the UK's um, domestic and international responsibilities, tends to just fall back to party dynamics, dynamics, and, um, uh, and and that's a you know that. It's hugely negative and worrying
1: for the longer term for the UK as well, a whole, I think. What are, this is the last question before we go on to some very short story questions, but are there trends that you see that you think are really worthwhile building on? Earlier on, you mentioned warmth. Is that the main one that you see an increasing <laughs> warmth between some of the leaders? Are there other trends too that you think are um, signs of something where there might be a sea change?
0: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't place too much on warmth because <laughs>
1: Okay, <laughs> you're cool about warmth. <laughs> yeah.
0: um, yes, I think there's, there's a willingness to think in new ways around engagement and about structures for engagement, who so have hinted at earlier in the Windsor framework, there is this commitment to try and have more direct engagement with Northern Ireland and more consultation, more inclusion of expertise, as well as, of course, a role for the Northern Ireland Assembly, and I think that's all very positive. Um, That's very much as it relates to the EU. And there is then a gap about how we see plugged into the UK, Westminster decision-making process. there's a sort of an absence there of um, information from Northern Ireland directly, um, and so there's there's a sort of an asymmetry there that is really you couldn't have predicted it, um, um, and uh, perhaps that sort of model of stakeholder engagement could be built upon more broadly across the UK. Um, otherwise, I don't see too much. Uh, you know, I'm trying to think, but there's not there's not too much to be hopeful on in terms of the UK constitution more generally at the moment. I think there's a there's a lot to be concerned about.
1: Katie Hayward, thank you very much for coming on the Cory Meadow Podcast. We really appreciate your time.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Corimela Podcast is created in partnership between Carmela and Fanfan. Fan. It's produced by Emily Rowling with mixing, editing, and theme music by Fra Sands at Safe Place Studios and presented by me, Padraig Tuma. The podcast is generously funded by the Henry Luce Foundation and the Community Relations Council Northern Ireland and the Irish Government's Reconciliation Fund. Thanks to them and thanks to Coromela's friends and supporters and thanks to you for listening. So, Katie, for our very short story questions, I'm curious, what's something important that you've changed your mind about?
0: So, uh, okay, I think if I'm honest, it's about business in the private sector. So um, I did write a little bit in the past around the private sector and cross-border cooperation, but I've always had a wariness of them because I've never had experience of working in the private sector, as you probably would not be too surprised to hear, and I have been so impressed um, and humbled by my engagement with those in the private sector and really seeing such a spirit of civicness and courage and careful intelligence and concern that I'd never expected to see amongst um, some business leaders in Northern Ireland Northern Ireland, and the wider UK. And, and that's something I've changed my mind about and I'm glad to be able to do so. That's not to say that I'm not Heavily critical of capitalism, et cetera, et yeah. cetera. Yeah. Huh. Um, I just that's been something good to change my mind about.
1: Obviously, we all carry multiple cultures and identities in us. Has anybody ever said to you that you were disloyal to one of your cultures or identities, Katie?
0: Um, well, from a very early age, my father would criticize me for not standing for the National Anthem after the Queen's speech in Christmas Day. <laughs> 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 And I started that very young and I think that kind of set me up in a trend.
1: And lastly, is there a short story you can tell us about a time when you said something that surprised you?
0: So recently I gave a talk, it was the Keele World Affairs lecture in um, in Keele, surprisingly enough, um, a couple of months ago and there was a question at the end um, and I wasn't sure how to answer it. It was basically looking for a last word around the future. Um, And uh, I had an answer to it that I didn't know I was going to have. And um, it was about hope. um, And uh... (laughs) this is a really bad answer because I can't remember what I said. (laughs) (laughs) But I think so. fundamentally it came down to you know, the fact that those there was, there was a few hundred people there in the middle of England coming to hear about the Irish border, actually, and the question and answer session afterwards was really good because they had really good questions, and that gave me hope. So even though I would like to give them hope around, you know, this will all settle down and everything, we can get back to the way things were, of course we can't do that anymore but the fact that 300 odd people had come in the middle of a fairly scuzzy night to hear somebody obscure talking about the Irish border really gave me hope, because there's a quest there for information and understanding um, amongst people who, who later day would never hear about Northern Ireland or think about it. And uh, I was able to express that to them. And that, that sort of came from somewhere in me that I I hadn't necessarily thought about too much. And it was a really, it was, a, it was a moment that I, I'll never forget, actually. Um, and it was great to be able to try and offer them encouragement in trying to find information and understanding in something that's so complicated and often off-putting.